Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome in to another brand new episode of Sports Court. And as always, I'd like to thank you for listening, however and wherever you may be listening. Tons to dive into today. We have a very busy show planned for you today. But before we begin breaking down any of the biggest stories from around the world of sports, hopefully you're having an amazing Wednesday afternoon. Looking forward to the back half of the week just as much as I am. And for those of you that may be wondering, I want to start the show off with this. I know that the last time we spoke to each other, I explained to you guys where I've been and why I decided to take such a prolonged absence from the show. And for those of you that were with us on that episode, I informed you guys that back on August 27th, I lost my mom. And it's been a very difficult process, to say the least, to still try to grapple with that loss and also try to put my best foot forward as I move on to try to make some kind of semblance of what life is going to look like now that she's away, now that she's gone, rather. So for those of you that may be wondering, for those of you that may be asking the question to yourself, I wonder how is he doing? I'm doing okay. I'm just taking it day by day as people have told me to do. So hopefully you guys will continue to stick by me because I'm going to continue to pump out these episodes of Sports Court for you. Just bear with me. That's all I can truly say because It's going to take a while for me to really get back into that rhythm and into that zone that I was in before she passed away. But I know, knowing her the way that I did, that this is something that she would want me to continue to do because she was one of the few people that was inside of my everyday orbit that continued to encourage me to continue the podcast. So in honor of my mom, we are going to continue to do the show. With that being said, ladies and gentlemen, with that out of the way, We have a lot to do today. We have a lot to do this upcoming week as it pertains to sports content altogether. College football week number one is officially in the books. The NFL season kicks off tomorrow night. The Detroit Lions goes down to Kansas City to take on the Kansas City Chiefs. I will have a preview of that game plus my prediction coming up a little bit later today in the show. We're also going to discuss what happens to be the biggest story in college football right now. And that happens to be Deion Sanders and what he's done in his first game as Colorado's head football coach. 
We're also going to have a little bit of tennis talk as it pertains to the U.S. Open. A lot of big things has taken place up in Flushing Meadows over the past couple of days at the U.S. Open. So I want to give you my thoughts on that as well. And we also have unpopular opinions as it makes its very popular return to the show today. All of that plus a final verdict will be at your disposal at the end of today's show. So just sit back, enjoy yourself once again. Hopefully you're having an amazing Wednesday afternoon. Yes, I did say Wednesday afternoon. There's a long backstory that goes into that as well. So let me go ahead and explain it to you. For those of you that may be unfamiliar or for those of you that may be unaware, this podcast is not my regular job. It's not my main job. I should have put it to you that way. So I have a regular job that I go to. And considering the fact that I've been off from both of my jobs since my mom passed, it's going to take a little bit of time at my other job for me to catch back up and to get back into the swing of things. So I've been working extra days to make sure I can get caught back up to re-familiarize myself with the inner workings of my job. So that's the reason why you guys are getting this episode on Wednesday afternoon as opposed to Wednesday morning, which I typically do these episodes. So hopefully you continue to stick by me with that as well. So I'm done with my ramble. I'm done with talking about everything that has little to nothing to do with sports, although you guys can understand the importance of why I'm bringing up what has happened in my life over the past few weeks. But with all of that out of the way, ladies and gentlemen, it is time for you to receive my opening thoughts for today. So we've been having this conversation for quite a while, and we've been having this conversation for as long as I can remember here in recent memory. And the conversation happens to center around the new way we view college football. Now, many of us as fans have had to adapt to the new way in which college football is being operated, while others of us have not been so open to the new possibilities of what college football has in store. And that also can be said when you think about certain coaches. Certain coaches have had to change the way that they view the sport in which they coach. Certain coaches have had to change the way in which they view not only their respective programs, but the way in which they look at certain recruits that are trying to come into their program. But one of the few coaches that has not been able to get on board with the way college football is today would be one Dabo Sweeney, who's the head football coach at Clemson University. Now, let me go ahead and tell you why this is so important. So Monday night, or Monday rather, was Labor Day. And I'm pretty sure each and every one of you spent time with family or did something that you enjoyed doing on the holiday. But I'll tell you what I did. So I was prepping today's show back on Monday and I could not wait for the start of Clemson Duke, which was the last game of the Labor Day weekend slate. And I was thinking to myself, this is going to be an amazing opportunity for Dabo Sweeney and his football program to show us why they should still be taken seriously as national title contenders. Garrett Riley was brought in as offensive coordinator after the disastrous job that Brandon Streeter did back in 2022. We would also have an opportunity to see what Kate Klubnick would look like in his first main action that was not having DJ Uyagalale behind him as a potential threat to his job. And we would also have an opportunity to see that Clemson defense, two seasons removed from the last time Brent Venables was able to call said defense. So what happened in Chapel Hill, North Carolina? What happened in Durham, North Carolina? Forgive me, I'm thinking about the Tar Heels. So what happened in Durham, North Carolina on Monday night? Well, 
Mike Elko and Riley Leonard is what happened to Clemson. 28-7 to became the final score. Now, don't let the final score deceive you. Don't let the final score try to tell you something that's not there. You may listen to that final score. You may look at that final score and you may say to yourself, well, that wasn't too bad of a beating that Clemson took. If you watch the game from opening kick until the final seconds ticked off that clock, you would have witnessed what many people are starting to call the downfall of Clemson football, and rightfully so. This is not the same program that we've become familiarized with over the past few years. This is not the same program that every single season in the late 20 teens was in the conversation to be a national championship contender. This is not the same Dabo Sweeney that was able to go and get four and five star recruits left, right, and sideways to fill the holes that remained in his roster. Now, one of the things that I've always said about Clemson, and one of the things that I've always said about them as a football team last season and after what we witnessed on Monday night, was that you get a sense of people who have started to revisit the way they thought about this team back in 2022. All I heard last season, any and every time Clemson either won a close game or lost a game that they should have won, this is the reason why DJ Uyagalale will never be able to take over the reins of the Clemson football quarterback position from Trevor Lawrence. That's all I heard. Many people tried to put the problems that Clemson faced in 2022 on their quarterback. So now DJ Uyagalale is no longer the quarterback. He's at Oregon State and played phenomenal in their first game. And now we're starting to see Clemson kind of start to rip away as we know him. So why did I bring this up? Why did I start today's show off with this? I started today's show off with this because the reason why Clemson lost this game, they lost this game for a number of reasons. Number one, Mike Elko just simply outcoached Dabo. Number two, Riley Leonard just simply outplayed Kate Klubnik. And the other big reasons why Clemson lost this game to Duke is because of Dabo Sweeney's unwillingness to use the transfer portal and his unwillingness to shell out the big NIL money that he needs in order to bring in recruits if you want to play the game of college football in 2023 and beyond the right way. Dabo Sweeney's unwillingness to admit that the tide has turned in college football is costing him wins that we would have usually saw him get if the old system was still intact the way in which it once used to be. But the one thing that I've learned about life and the one thing that I continuously stress to people that I talk to in my day-to-day life is that everything has to change. If everything in life was meant to stay the same, we would never be able to fully appreciate the evolutionary process that life takes us through. And that's the same thing that we can say about Dabo Sweeney. That's the same thing we can say about Clemson. Now, I know that you've heard other people in the sports media world give more harsher reviews about Dabo and the game against Duke. I'm not one of those people because I still believe that although they did suffer this opening game loss, there's still an opportunity down the road for Clemson to redeem themselves. And I know what you guys may be saying to yourself. I know it, Gary, is exactly which game you're talking about. And that's the game that they're going to have to play three weeks from now against their ACC rival, Florida State. And since Clemson and or since the ACC is no longer in divisions, we're potentially going to have an opportunity to see this matchup more than once. Because if Florida State comes in there and beats Clemson, and then if Clemson turns around and beats Florida State in the ACC championship game, who knows what kind of a conundrum the college football playoff will find themselves in. 
when it comes time to decide the four teams that are eventually going to play for the national championship or play for a chance at the national championship. But everything we saw Monday night from Clemson, both offensively and defensively, shows you why college football is slowly but surely passing Dabo Sweeney by. Because he's not trying to change the way he coaches to suit what's in the best interest of the team moving forward. They lost this game on both sides of the ball, offensively, defensively. Both lines, offensive line and defensive line, were atrocious in this game. They basically showed us how not to win a football game. They basically showed us how not to build a team. And everybody thought that Garrett Riley was just going to be this big addition that Clemson was going to need if they wanted to continue to stay in that national championship hunt. Everybody thought that when Garrett Riley came into the fold from TCU and when he was paired with Kate Klubnik, that was just going to be a match made in heaven. And in this first game, we saw Clemson do things that were uncharacteristic of them that we've never really seen them do in the Dabo Sweeney era. Now, I know I saw a stat, and I could be wrong about this stat, but this was one of the most lopsided defeats that Dabo Sweeney has ever suffered as a head football coach at Clemson. That was a stat that I saw. And at his press conference after the game, Dabo lamented that by saying similar things than what I just said. He talked about how lopsided of a loss that was. He talked about how the tide had started to turn, how things weren't necessarily going the way that they once used to for this program. And all of that could be alleviated if Dabo Sweeney will finally admit that college football is starting to turn. Things are not going to work the way that they once used to back in 2015, 16, 17, 18, 19. This is a different time. This is a different era. These guys now, they're no longer interested in being sold on how great your facilities look. These guys are no longer interested on how many national championships you've won. These guys now that are coming out of high school, they have a choice to go to any university that they want to simply based on how much NIL money you're willing to throw at their feet. How much NIL money you're willing to pay for their services. There used to be a point in time where you could pitch a recruit on how great the facilities look. There used to be a time where you could pitch a guy on how many Heisman Trophy winners your university has produced. There was a time where you could pitch a recruit on how many national titles you've won. But those days are over. These guys want to know for sure that any time they step on campus, will they have an opportunity to start number one and how much money will they make for being the starter at the university. And that's something that Dabo Sweeney refuses to come around to. And obviously, in the long run, that's going to continue to cost him and Clemson wins that they desperately need. Now, I was listening to Paul Feinbaum the other day on ESPN. And he basically said that this is the beginning of the end of the dynasty for Dabo and Clemson. Now, I'm not going to go as far as to say that. But now I kind of understand why Kirby Smart is so hesitant about becoming complacent in their quest to become the first team since the 1930s to three-peat. And the reason why Kirby is becoming so hesitant about all of the outside noise as it pertains to the three-peat is because Kirby knows that he's going to have to keep his foot on the gas at all times if Georgia wants to keep their grip on the national championship intact. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Kirby knows that if he takes his foot off the gas just for a second, there could be another school that could see that as a sign of weakness or a sign of vulnerability, and they could instantly overtake Georgia. But when you think about Dabo Sweeney and where Clemson is right now, everybody's going to be asking the question, is this the end of the Clemson football program? Is this the end of Dabo Sweeney? And I'm going to say no. I don't believe that this is the end of the dynasty because I believe we've already witnessed the beginning of the end of the dynasty. We witnessed that when Dabo came out and publicly acknowledged that he's not going to change the way he operates his football program just because players can now be paid for their services. That's when I knew right then and there that Dabo Sweeney was never going to be able to compete at a high level again for the goals that he's expired his team to have. And that becomes problematic when you are a recruit coming out of high school and your goal, if you live in South Carolina or North Carolina or anywhere in the South, if your goal was to play at Clemson and if your goal was to play for Dabo Sweeney, if you listen to him and if you really understand and gauge where his mindset is right now, You may say to yourself as a recruit, I don't want any parts of that program because if he's not going to be willing to pay me the way other guys of my caliber are getting paid, then I don't want to go there. I'll go join Shane Beamer in South Carolina. I'll go join Mac Brown in North Carolina. I'll go join Tony Elliott at Virginia. I'll go join Josh Heupel at Tennessee. I'll go join Nick Saban at Alabama. I'll go join Lane Kiffin at Ole Miss. I'll go join Zach Arnett at Mississippi State. I'll go join... You know, this one is just a far-fetched idea, but I'll go join Billy Napier at Florida. And Clemson is going to start to feel the ramifications of what it means to not use the transfer portal and not pay these guys NIL money. Now, there's also something else that I want to bring up because it's important to what happened on Monday night. We're really starting to see what Clemson is made of now that a lot of high-profile assistants are no longer assistants. One of the guys I just mentioned, Tony Elliott. When Tony Elliott was there at Clemson as one of the co-offensive coordinators, this was one of the most prolific offenses that we've ever seen in college football. Now, of course, we became a little spoiled to that notion when Joe Burrow and company showed up in 2019. But when Tony Elliott was one of the co-offensive coordinators for Clemson, that offense was prolific. And on the flip side of the ball, when we saw Brent Venables as a defensive coordinator, we knew each and every time a Clemson game was on television, we knew that their defense was going to be top notch. We can't say that about either side of the ball after what we witnessed on Monday night, because neither side of the ball really showed you that they're prolific. And then, of course, the conversation is going to come up in the next couple of weeks here. Well, how can Clemson win games if they were exposed on Labor Day by Duke? And the simple answer to that question is that Clemson is going to find themselves at various points in the season engaging in dogfights. They're really going to have to scrape and claw their way to victories down the stretch. 
And one of those games that they're going to have to scratch and claw in is the game against their rival Florida State Seminoles. Because I don't know if you witnessed what I witnessed over the weekend when the Florida State Seminoles took on the LSU Tigers in Orlando, but they seem to be a legit contender now in the ACC. And they also could seem to be a legit contender nationally. Mike Norvell was brought into Tallahassee to do something that Willie Taggart could not do. And he was brought in to basically help complete the revival of Florida State football because we had seen it at its apex with Bobby Bowden. And when Bobby Bowden stepped away and Jimbo Fisher was hired, we saw it continue at its apex. And then when Jimbo took over Texas A&M and Willie Taggart was brought in to be Florida State's head coach, then we kind of saw the dip. But now that you have Mike Norvell in the fold, it took a while. The first year may not have produced results that you were familiar with as a Florida State fan, and many of you even thought that this was just going to be a continuation of Willie Taggart. Now that Mike Norvell has his foot planted exactly where he wants it in Tallahassee, and now that they have built a national championship-level team down there, I think that they could easily rival Clemson in the ACC. And I'll go even a step further and say they can rival anyone nationally for the title altogether. So this is just typical what happens when someone finds out that the sport in which they coach or the sport in which they play has passed them by. And Dabo Sweeney is a victim of that. This sport has passed him by. And the only way that he's ever going to truly regain his form at the top of the sport is if he's willing to embrace the changes that the sport has gone through. Opening up that checkbook, giving out NIL deals, opening up your mind to using the transfer portal. It won't hurt you. It won't kill you. But what it will do is it will provide you with the talent necessary to compete at a high level that you once used to compete at. And those were my opening thoughts for today. Now, before I move on, I have to give credit where credit is due because I spent a lot of that time in the open talking about Clemson. But Riley Leonard and Mike Elko and the entire Duke Blue Devil football team, they came into that game with a mission. They came into that game basically saying, you know what? We have nothing to lose. If we go out here and lose to Clemson, nobody's going to be mad at us because nobody thought we are going to win the game anyway. And if we go out here and beat Clemson, then we're going to be looked at as one of the best feel-good stories of college football week number one. So if you're Mike Elko and if you're Riley Leonard and if you're the rest of the Duke Blue Devils football team, you're saying to yourself right now, we now have the confidence in ourselves to where we can go into every other game remaining on our schedule with a chance to win it. Because if we can take down number nine ranked Clemson, we can take down anybody. So that's something to take into consideration if you are a Duke fan as this season continues to progress. Okay, so I'll go ahead and let you in on a little secret. What I'm about to get ready and talk about next is going to jump what I originally wanted to talk about after I finished opening thoughts. But I wanted to give my thoughts on this because it's the talk of college football right now. And to be perfectly honest with you, it feels as though this topic is the talk of sports media right now. This feels like a topic that, no matter where you go, someone somewhere is going to be talking about this. And of course, I'm talking about what Colorado did over the weekend to TCU. Now, of course, I'm pretty sure at some point or another, we've all either watched the game or we've gone back and we've seen the highlights. 
But one of the things that I've took the liberty to discuss with you guys today is that I feel as though we're getting what Deion Sanders and Colorado did in week one. We're misconstruing it a little bit. Now, don't get me wrong. What they did against TCU is admirable, is commendable. But I think what we're forgetting in the long-term big picture scheme of this is that this isn't something new. This isn't something that Deion Sanders and Colorado just did overnight. And I say all that to say this. Everyone that listens to this podcast, at some point or another, I've mentioned to you that I'm from Mississippi. I'm proud of the fact I'm from Mississippi. I'm proud of the fact that, you know, despite everything that this state has been through from a historical context, we still have a rich history. It may not all be great history, but we still have a rich history. And I will go to my grave thankful that I had an opportunity to be born and raised in the state of Mississippi. With that being said, I'm pretty sure you guys know that from 2020 until 2022, Deion Sanders was the head football coach at Jackson State. And during his time at Jackson State, they won the SWAC twice. Now, that 2020 season was a little bit difficult. They had to find their footing. Everything wasn't squared away the way it was in 21 and 22. So no one was truly pegging them to be the team that was going to win the SWAC in 2020. But in 21 and 22, they found their footing, won the SWAC, But, of course, we all remember that they lost in the Celebration Bowl both times. So, with that being said, Deion Sanders was the head football coach for three seasons at Jackson State. And during that time, Deion Sanders brought a level of enthusiasm to that program that had not been there for quite a while. He even had college game day come to Jackson to sit down and talk to him about the progress that this team was making. So, it goes to show you how that program started to evolve once Deion Sanders became the coach. With that being said, that's the reason why what Deion Sanders is doing at Colorado has not shocked me. Now, of course, I would be facetious if I sit here and say that Colorado going on the road to Fort Worth, Texas as 21-point underdogs and beating them by three, I can't sit here and tell you that that didn't catch me by surprise because it did. The way in which they were able to keep up with TCU was quite shocking in its own right. But the way in which Deion Sanders was able to walk in the bowl of Colorado, speak to those guys and say, listen, some of you guys aren't going to be here for the revival of this team. So you need to either enter the portal or you need to do whatever you got to do. But all of you guys won't be here for what I'm about to do. I'm bringing my own luggage is Louie and my son is going to be the quarterback. So what Deion Sanders is doing at Colorado right now is not shocking because he basically did this exact same thing at Jackson State. Now, although once he got to Jackson State, he didn't go in there and clean house. They brought in some players, more specifically brought in Travis Hunter. But besides that and a few other moves that he made, he didn't really do anything at Jackson State that he hasn't done already at Colorado. Now, with that being said, There's a big game that Colorado is going to take part in this weekend, and it's going to be a game that's going to pit them up against the Nebraska Cornhuskers. Now, Nebraska lost their opening game of the season on the road in Minneapolis to Minnesota, P.J. Fleck. Now they travel to Boulder to take on what many people would consider to be the hottest team right now in college football. We all know that Colorado is favored. 
And we all know that that stadium is going to be sold out. What I'm saying, basically, is that from this point forward, after Colorado defeated TCU, people have been divided into two camps. The first camp is people who were either brought it, bought into Dion when he first arrived in Boulder, and then you also have the people in that bracket who started to become a believer in Deion Sanders and what he was doing at Colorado. In the second column, you have people that do not like the way Deion Sanders is going about his business in Colorado and wishes that he would stop basically self-promoting himself as the football coach. Two different brackets that you can throw people into as it pertains to this matter. Me personally, I'll tell you the way in which I look at this. I think it's commendable that Deion Sanders has brought a level of relevancy back to Colorado that we've not seen in quite some time. And I also think that he understands what he's up against. Deion Sanders understands that he's not going to get everybody to buy into what he's doing. He understands that there's going to be haters and detractors along the way. And he also understands that there are going to be people, no matter how big they win or no matter how small they win, Those people will never truly buy into what he's doing, and he's fine with that. Now, I will tell you something that Deion Sanders did over the weekend that I did not like. So Deion Sanders in Colorado, they win the game, and they go in and do their post-game interview. And Ed Reuter, who works for ESPN, he's a beat reporter, he basically is up next to ask Deion Sanders a question. And Dion basically spends the next couple of seconds lambasting Ed Water because he didn't believe that Colorado was instantly going to become a contender. And what pissed Dion off was the fact that earlier in the year, Ed Water put out a tweet basically calling Dion Sanders a celebrity coach. And that sent Dion Sanders somewhere that many people thought he wasn't going to go. And some people thought he shouldn't have went. That was the only thing from the weekend that I did not like. There were more professional ways that Deion Sanders could have handled that. But Deion Sanders has lived longer than I have. So, of course, I can't sit here and say that the way he handled it was, to my liking, the right way or the wrong way. So, with that being said, you know, you know, we all handle things in our own way. But it's going to be a very big game this weekend. And I think everyone in the college football world will have their eyes fixated upon what Colorado is going to be able to do against Nebraska. Now, let me just go ahead and say this. I may only be 22 years old, but I'm also a big historian of sports. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
You can ask me any question about sports and nine times out of 10, I will have the answer for you or I can get the answer for you and return it to you in a couple of seconds of you asking the question. I understand that the Nebraska-Colorado rivalry has not been this explosive in quite some time. There used to be a point in time where you could not tell the story of a college football season without including Nebraska and Colorado. Now, I'm not trying to sit here and say definitively that Matt Rule and Deion Sanders, respectively, are going to bring that tradition back to the sport. But if this game produces the same types of results that the TCU-Colorado game produced, then we're going to be in for a treat. And if you're Fox, that's exactly what you're hoping for. You're hoping for a second consecutive week of Deion Sanders and Colorado being able to produce a product that's going to keep people glued to the TV set for all four quarters of the game. So I will say one other thing to add on to this point. Dion basically told the team, and I mentioned this, he told the team when he first arrived in Boulder that Shadur is going to be the quarterback. And Shadur went out there and put up astronomical numbers on that TCU defense. I don't want to sound like a party pooper, and I don't want to sound like a Debbie Downer. But what Shador Sanders did to that TCU pass defense in week one was some of the same things that we saw Stetson Bennett doing the national championship game. I'm, once again, I'm not trying to discredit anything that Shador Sanders did in that game. But it has become quite apparent here lately that TCU defensively is not that great. And what I also want to say is that now we're starting to hear the talk about Shadur Sanders and Travis Hunter being co-favorites to win the Heisman Trophy. Now, never before in the history of the sport have we ever seen what I'm about to say. So here's your bold prediction for today, 31 minutes into the show. Here's the bold prediction. Travis Hunter and Shadur Sanders, if, notice what I just said, If they keep up this level of play, for the first time in history, there will be co-Heisman Trophy winners. And they will both come from the same university. Shadur Sanders and Travis Hunter will win the Heisman Trophy. If they keep up their level of play that they're doing right now, if they're doing it right now. That's the bold prediction. So with all of that being said, I think we're going to see a very entertaining game on Saturday morning. I would give you a prediction, but I'll wait till Friday to do that because there's still a few things that I'm trying to process about that matchup and about the coaching matchup, the quarterback matchup. And I don't want to become a person that's become fixated on one particular moment because we can look at Colorado, what they did in week one, and they may not be able to duplicate that in week two. And we could also see what, Nebraska did in week one against Minnesota, letting that game slip away within the final seconds of the fourth. And they could come out and look vastly different than they did in that game. So it's anybody's contest right now. But as we currently speak, Colorado is the prohibited favorite to win that game in Boulder week two, Saturday, September the 9th. Okay. So before I hit record, or before I decided to hit record to do today's show, we found out some breaking news earlier this afternoon. 
So there have been two big storylines that have hovered over the start of the 2023 NFL season. Number one, will Chris Jones play on tomorrow night? And number two, will the San Francisco 49ers and Nick Bosa finally come to terms on a new contract? So now as we sit here this afternoon, the latter happened. Earlier this afternoon, the San Francisco 49ers and Nick Bosa agreed on a five-year, $170 million contract extension. This deal provides Nick Bosa with a guaranteed $122.5 million. So what does that mean necessarily? It means that Nick Bosa, for all his worth and for all intents and purposes, is finally receiving the money that he feels he's due. Secondly, it means that San Francisco is now in a crunch time scenario where they're going to have to win a Super Bowl here soon. Because there is no way realistically with the talent that they have and with the money that they're spending on said talent that they should not be in the conversation to be in the Super Bowl again. And this time, it's not necessarily them being in the Super Bowl that's more important. It's them winning the Super Bowl that matters the most. And thirdly, other players at that position will look at his contract and say to themselves, okay, it's my turn to get paid. More specifically, Nick, more specifically rather, Micah Parsons. Micah Parsons is going to look at this deal and he's going to say to Jerry Jones or Stephen Jones or whoever does the deal making in Dallas, he's going to look at them and say, okay, Nick Bosa got this. I'm looking for something either in that range or a little bit more. And we'll see what Jerry Jones's demeanor will be like in public once Michael Parsons makes his demands. It's crazy when you think about it. Because when you think about Nick Bosa, Everybody thought that this deal was not going to be done in time for their game Sunday against the Steelers. And everybody thought that John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan was making a big mistake by not paying their best defensive player. And then on the other hand, you look at what's transpiring in Kansas City with Chris Jones. He came out and did an interview today where he basically said all he's looking for is a raise. He said that, and I'm paraphrasing his quote, that his goal is to always be a Kansas City chief. He wants to be a chief for life. It feels as though now, and I've said this a couple of weeks ago, so if this sounds redundant to you guys, I sincerely apologize. I've said this. It feels as though now we're starting to see this trend in professional sports, not just in the NFL, but in all professional sports. We're starting to see this trend where now the only thing that matters to some of these athletes is how can I become the highest paid at my position? And it seems as though now one guy gets paid X amount of dollars, the next guy gets paid more. For an example, Nick Bosa received a five-year, $170 million deal. When it's time for Michael Parsons to receive his deal, his deal may be five years at $175, $177 million. And then the next guy at that position is going to come along. He's going to get his chunk. So it just feels as though now we're starting to see an uptick in these contracts. And it makes you wonder as a fan, Are these guys truly playing for the goal of potentially winning a Super Bowl or are they just looking to line their pockets by becoming the highest paid player at their said position? Now, I'm not trying to spite Nick Bosa. I feel as though Nick Bosa deserved to get paid because he is the reigning defensive player of the year. But it just feels as though now when you look at professional sports, it's all about how can I get my bag? How can I secure the most money at my position? I will say this, and this is very unpopular, but it's not the unpopular opinion for today. Guys back in the day that played football, they were 
much more talented, but yet they received less money than the guys do now. So that's just always been a very interesting conundrum that as a fan, I've looked at and said that that's something that needs to be fixed. But those are my thoughts on that. So I have been kind of out for a while. You guys know that. But one of the things that has never been out of style is Jerry Jones talking about his quarterback situation in Dallas. Now, I came back and we did an episode on Sunday. And one of the first things I talked about out of the gate was the fact that the San Francisco 49ers traded Trey Lance to the Dallas Cowboys for a fourth-round draft pick. And instantly, the acquisition of Trey Lance made people skeptical about Dak Prescott's long-term future in Dallas. And Jerry Jones, at every single turn, has given us mixed signals about Dak Prescott's long-term future. Jerry Jones feels like, I'll use this analogy for you guys. When I think about Jerry Jones, and when I think about him when he speaks about Dak Prescott, I think about him like a guy that's speaking about his girlfriend to his friends. Like, the friend asks the guy, are you planning on marrying her? One week he says, yes, that's the goal. I want to marry her. I want her to be my wife until the day I die. The next week, the same question comes up, and the guy says, you know, I'm starting to get cold feet. I don't know if she's the right one. Yeah, we've been together since we were 16. We're 23 now. I don't really feel like I'm ready to marry her. It's always some kind of roadblock that's set up to prevent you from addressing what's in front of you. And I feel like that's what we're starting to see now with Jerry Jones and his complex relationship that he has with his star quarterback, Dak Prescott. So earlier this week, Dak Prescott, or earlier this week rather, Jerry Jones made his typical appearance on 105.3 The Fan in Dallas. And he was talking about Dak Prescott and the acquisition of Trey Lance. And this is what he had to say about Dak's long-term future in Dallas on Tuesday during his radio spot. And I quote, Those types of numbers, especially the big ones, you live with constantly. That's always on your mind. There's never a time where it goes away because you've got to make the entire thing fit. And then he goes on to say, And so, it's on the mind on a player decision in the middle of the year. It's just a fundamental. We expect Dak to be with us for a long time. And yeah, we'll always be working around it with several machinations of numbers that would work. And the quote. Now, these comments comes as Dak Prescott is entering into a pivotal year of his career. Dak Prescott is in search of a contract extension. I know it feels as though we were just talking about this a couple of days, or not a couple of days ago. I felt like we were just talking about this a couple of years ago when Jerry Jones gave Dak Prescott that four-year, $160 million contract. And now it feels like here we are again talking about Dak Prescott in search of another contract extension. So let me put this into perspective for you. In 2024, Dak Prescott has a cap hit of $54.9 million, which is second when it comes to ranking amongst NFL players. What Jerry Jones is basically saying here is that we want to keep Dak around, 
But we're also going to have to look at our numbers and see how can we maneuver his contract extension into the books so it doesn't put us over the cap. That's basically what Jerry Jones is saying here. Now, I'll tell you this, because I feel as though someone has to say it. And I'm pretty sure you guys have heard people say this before, but you haven't truly heard it from me. I've been one of the people that's always said to myself in the back of my head, that Jerry Jones was never warm to the idea of Dak Prescott being his quarterback because I felt that once Dak Prescott stepped on the scene in 2016 and once they went on to have that monster 13-3 and season, which ultimately culminated in them getting home field advantage throughout the course of the NFC playoff, which ultimately ended in them losing at home in the divisional round to the Green Bay Packers, that caused Jerry Jones to move on from Tony Romo faster than he wanted to. Because in Jerry Jones's heart of hearts, he still knew that there was a slight chance that Tony Romo could eventually return and play quarterback for the Cowboys again. And moving off of Tony Romo in favor of Dak Prescott put him in a basically no-win situation. And now here we are seven years after the fact, wondering to ourselves, how does Jerry truly feel about Dak? Because he's always sent us these mixed, confusing signals in the media Basically, one week saying that Dak is the future at the quarterback position and then going on to say, well, we don't know if we truly want to have him long term if the numbers aren't there. Something along those lines. So Jerry basically, and I'm pretty sure you guys have heard this saying, Jerry Jones is basically speaking out of two sides of his mouth or speaking out of both sides of his mouth. Let me not make my grandmother mad because she was the first one I heard use that saying in my young childhood. Jerry Jones is basically speaking out of both sides of his mouth. And we've heard owners do this before, but no owner does this more than Jerry Jones. Jerry Jones is one of those guys that you have to be cautious when he guarantees you something. Jerry Jones could tell you tomorrow, hey, I'll help you move. And then once tomorrow gets here, you call him, hey, Jerry, you still going to help me move? Uh, Did I tell you I was going to help you move? No, I may not have promised it. I said maybe. If I have time, I'll help you move. I'm busy right now. I'll talk to you later. Click. That's basically Jerry Jones. So if I'm Dak Prescott, or if you're Dak Prescott, let me paraphrase it that way. If you're Dak Prescott, two things right now should motivate you to go out and have a very big 2023 season. First of all, the acquisition of Trey Lance. And second of all, your impending need of a contract extension. If those two things don't motivate you to play quarterback at a high level this season, then I don't know what will, except for your own expectations, obviously. But Jerry Jones knows that if he wants to fit Dak's new contract extension into the cap, some things are going to have to be maneuvered so that that can be achieved. Now, obviously, there is one other question that we have to ask ourselves. What does that mean for Micah Parsons and what does that mean for CeeDee Lamb? Because we know both of those guys coming up here pretty soon are going to be looking for contract extensions of their own. And after seeing what Nick Bosa received, Jerry is also going to have to be sitting around scratching his head wondering, okay, man, these numbers continue to grow and grow and grow. How can I continue to compete with some of these numbers that these other guys are getting? And in short form and in no, in, in no uncertain terms, He's going to have to figure it out because that's what the great GMs do. They figure out a way to plug these numbers into the cap so it doesn't hurt them in the long run. Just look at how Howie Roseman's doing it right now in Philadelphia. 
But one thing we also know about teams like that, eventually you're going to have to start parting ways with some of your best talent because you're not going to be able to keep everybody forever. So interesting times right now in Dallas when you think about Jerry Jones and what he's going to have to eventually do in order to keep Dak in town for the long term. So speaking of the long term, I want to touch on something that I wanted to discuss with you guys at the top of the show, but Clemson and Duke overtook what I originally wanted to start off today's show discussing with you guys. So over the weekend, we saw the Camping World kickoff between the LSU Tigers and the Florida State Seminoles. One of the things that I knew heading into that game, and I'm pretty sure we all knew, was that someone was going to have to win that game and someone was going to have to lose that game. And when it was all said and done, the LSU Tigers walked out of that stadium that night with the loss. Now, anytime you look at a loss, you say to yourself, okay, what happened? This was a top 10 matchup between number five LSU and number eight Florida State. And if you look at the box score, Florida State won that game 45 to 24. And if you didn't watch the game, you would say to yourself, okay, then that must have meant that Florida State, at some point or another, just put their foot on the gas from the start and didn't relinquish it. And that would have been opposite of what happened. Because if you look at the halftime score, LSU went into the locker room at halftime with a 17 to 14 lead. And then coming out of the locker room, this is where this game got interesting. Florida State went on a 31-7 run in the second half, which ultimately helped them defeat the number five ranked team in the country at that time. Now, of course, the new AP Top 25 poll has come out. LSU has dropped drastically while Florida State has risen. So that tells you everything you need to know about why this matchup was so significant. Another reason why this matchup was so significant was because a couple of days before it kicked off, Brian Kelly said some things that may have become bulletin board material for Mike Norvell and his crew. Brian Kelly basically said, we're going to beat the mess out of Florida State. I'm paraphrasing this quote, but it went along those lines as it pertains to what he said. We're going to beat the mess out of Florida State. And then you look around and you see that Mike Norvell and Florida State beat the mess out of him. That's also another point I want to bring up to you guys. If you hear someone say, And I'm going back to the Clemson-Duke game for a second. If you hear someone say that Duke beat Clemson, I want you to immediately stop them and say, no, Duke did not beat Clemson. They beat the shit out of Clemson. Say it that way. Say it with your chest. And make sure that S rolls off your chest as hard as you can get it. And also, when you think about FSU and LSU, when someone says, LSU was beaten by FSU. You stop them and you say, no, LSU was not beaten by FSU. The person may look around and say, what game did you watch? We watched the same game, but Florida State beat the shit out of LSU. That's how you should say it. Because those two games pretty much, for all it was worth, turned out to be some of the biggest what-the-hell moments of the weekend. Because if you think about LSU, And you think about what Brian Kelly has built down in Baton Rouge, you would have instantly thought that they would have come into that game and they would have continued to put on a much better fight than they did in the second half. And then if you looked at Mike Norvell, everyone knew that it was time for Florida State to take that jump. 
but no one thought that it was going to be this way in this magnitude against an opponent like LSU. Now, of course, if you're a Florida State fan, you instantly looked at that game and said, this is our opportunity to pounce. This is our opportunity to show the college football world why we should be taken seriously from this point forward. With all of that being said, there was one person in this game or two people in this game that really set the tone for how Florida State walked out of Orlando with a victory. One of those people happens to be Jordan Travis. 23 of 31, 342 yards, four touchdowns, one interception. The other guy happened to be Keon Coleman. Nine receptions for 122 yards and three touchdowns. Now, why does this matter? If you're Keon Coleman, this kind of goes back to the point that I made at the top of the show when I was talking about Clemson and their inability to use the transfer portal to get talent. Keon Coleman entered the transfer portal a couple of months ago after transferring out of Michigan State. And like any smart team would have done, Florida State decided that, you know what, we could use this guy in our greater goal of what we're trying to accomplish in this upcoming season. Whereas Clemson looked at Keon Coleman and said, nah, we're good with what we got. And that's ultimately the reason why Florida State was able to put up such astronomical numbers offensively in this game because of the continuity between Jordan Travis and Keon Coleman. When those two guys were in sync during this game, they were unstoppable. And Jordan Travis only rose, or let me rephrase, Jordan Travis, his performance in this game against LSU only caused his Heisman stock to rise. Whereas if you look at Jaden Daniels, on the other hand, and I'm fond of both of these guys, I'm fond of both of them. So I'm not trying to say that Jaden Daniels played badly in this game. But Jaden Daniels, 22 of 37, 347 yards, one touchdown, and one interception. Neither team really did all that great of a job running the football, but when their quarterbacks were on, they were on. This is what happens when you allow your coach to cash, or let me rephrase this. I'm sorry, guys. This is what happens when your coach goes out there and writes checks that your team will ultimately have to cash. If Brian Kelly would have kept his mouth shut, and if Brian Kelly would have never given Florida State bulletin board material, and if LSU would have still lost the game, I don't think people would be dogging Brian Kelly the way that they are now. But because he opened his mouth, and because he said that they're going to beat the mess out of Florida State, that gave people the ammunition that they needed to lambast Brian Kelly after this game concluded. And I've been seeing I've been seeing all kind of wild and crazy things about BK. Many people have even gone as far as to say this is a typical Brian Kelly result. Even when he was at Notre Dame and big games like this happened, Brian Kelly and his teams at Notre Dame shrunk from the task. And the people who say that aren't wrong because we have seen that movie play out on several different occasions where Notre Dame easily walks into a game and they're not favored, but they have a strong opportunity to be in the favorite conversation, the next thing you know, they just stink up the joint. Think back to 2012 for a second, when Notre Dame made it all the way to the national championship game against Alabama. And you say to yourself, okay, we know Alabama's the far more superior team, but Notre Dame being undefeated in their cruise to the national championship, which was in Miami that year, they should be able to make this game interesting. And what happens? Alabama runs roughshod over Notre Dame, and they win their second 
national championship under Nick Saban. If I remember correctly, their second chip under Nick Saban. So all I'm saying is, is that when you look at this game from the outside looking in, this was an occasion of a team being more prepared to play a game than the other. And that's something that Brian Kelly even said to the media in the postgame presser, that this was not the LSU team that was preparing during the course of the week to take on that FSU team. And basically, when your head coach comes out and says that we weren't physically, mentally ready to play this game, as a player in that locker room, it should make you think to yourself, okay, we didn't come out and look our best in this game. So how do we bounce back and how do we not let this loss define what we are trying to do for our season? How do we not let this loss become the blueprint for how teams can beat us down the road? Because I'm pretty sure... Other teams in the SEC on LSU slate is going to look at that game and say to themselves, okay, this is how Florida State beat LSU. We could do the same thing. So all I'm basically saying is that if you're FSU right now, you've gone from basically being co-favorites to win the ACC alongside Clemson to now you find yourselves in the driver's seat in that conference, where now people are looking at you saying that you guys are the overwhelming favorite after week one to win the ACC. Luck of the draw. And this is also something that I want to talk to you guys about before we move on. This is also the tale of two different teams. Mike Norvell isn't afraid to go out there and use that portal. Mike Norvell isn't afraid to open that checkbook and cash those or write those NIL checks. On the other hand, Dabo and company, they don't want to use the portal. They don't want to open that checkbook up to dull out NIL checks. And you see the difference. It's very visible. FSU right now looks to be a more complete team than Clemson and it's going to show I believe in three weeks when they score off against each other but and I'm sorry guys I just have to go back to that game because there are so many different thoughts running through my head right now about that Clemson Duke game what's sad to me when I think about that game is that when you look at Clemson and you look at their skill position players offensively while we can blame Kate Klubnick for his up-and-down performance in that game, the only reason why he had an up-and-down performance in that game is due in large part to the fact that you really don't have any skill position players on the outside. The best player that they have offensively besides Kate Klubnick would happen to be Will Shipley. And if Will Shipley's not having a great game, then you can't really depend on anybody else. We thought that Bo Collins was going to be able to step in and become the number one wide receiver that has eluded this team for quite some time. Now, granted, Clemson has been at a loss at the receiver position for quite a while. They don't really have the Amari Rodgers anymore, the T. Higgins, the DeAndre Hopkins. They don't really have those guys anymore. Now it's basically wide receiver by committee, and we think that Alabama's wide receiver room is thin and depleted. Look at Clemson's wide receiver room. It's about as in badder of a shape than Alabama's wide receiver room. So that's just some more comments that I wanted to throw out about that game from the Clemson perspective. Before I move on to what I want to discuss with you guys next, I'm not trying to sound political here or anything of that nature, but I hope that each and every one of you out there are staying safe because I know that, you know, COVID is on the rise again and the East Coast is about to get ready and get swamped with another hurricane. So hopefully you guys are staying as safe as you can. Hopefully you told a loved one that you love them today. Don't let a day go by and not tell a loved one that you love them. It doesn't have to be the same loved one every day, but just make sure that you keep your family in close contact, you know, 
that's just one of the things that, you know, when I think about my mom, that's one of the things that I miss, you know, being able to tell her how much she means to me and how much I thank her for shaping and molding me into the young man than I am today. So make sure you tell a loved one that you love them. It goes a long way. It does more for them than you think. Okay. So if there is one coach in collegiate football, NFL football, both of those things, if there is one coach that's really pissing me off, it has to be Sean Payton. So we found out a couple of days ago that Sean Payton basically told Russell Wilson that he needs to stop kissing babies. You're not a politician. Basically trying to get him to rebrand his image. And I thought to myself, Sean Payton really trying to tell someone to rebrand their image. When if you think about Sean Payton and his coaching career, let's think about it. The two biggest things that we can think about as it pertains to Sean Payton. Number one, when he was the offensive coordinator for the Giants and they only put up seven points in that Super Bowl against the Baltimore Ravens. And secondly, him being one of the head honchos in the Bounty Gate scandal. So I think Sean Payton basically, and these are just my comments about Payton. We all know last season that the Denver Broncos had a season from hell. It was very bad. They did nothing well except defensively. Offensively, they they sucked. Let's just call it how we see it. They sucked. Sean Payton was basically brought to Denver to basically change the culture of that team because we found out different things from various reports stating that the Denver Broncos, they were a team that was dysfunctional on the inside. Many teammates became disgruntled with the fact that Russell Wilson was getting preferential treatment the whole nine yards. So Sean Payton was brought in to basically change the culture and change the landscape of the team. But one of the things that we've started to find out about Sean is that, you know, listen, feel how you want to feel about Russell Wilson. Everybody has their own opinions about Russ. Many people think that based upon his results last season, he should be taken out of the Hall of Fame conversation, which is one of the most absurd things I've heard. But I feel as though Sean Payton should at least try to win a game before he tries to come in there and be general in chief. Because let's be honest with ourselves. We don't really talk a lot about Sean Payton in the back half of those years after the Saints won the Super Bowl following the 2009 season. Yes, they continued to make the playoffs. Yes, they continued to make the NFC Championship game. But also in the mid-20-teens, they also had a few consecutive 7-9 seasons in there as well. And remember, this was also during the same time when 7-9 could win you that division. So what I'm basically saying is that I understand that Sean Payton is trying to dish out some tough love to his QB1. But Payton shouldn't come around and act like he has this squeaky clean resume and he shouldn't come around and act like he's just won the past five consecutive Super Bowls because it's been a while since we've looked at Sean Payton and said, okay, maybe he can get a team to the Super Bowl. Now, are there some changes that need to be made in Denver? Yes. Has those changes been brought to the team yet? Who knows? We'll have to wait and see on opening weekend. But I just think this continued lambasting publicly that Sean Payton is doing to Russell Wilson, it's just uncalled for. You can't handle this behind closed doors. That's all I'm saying about that. 
didn't want to spend too much time on it because it's just at this point making me sick if you want to just go ahead and be truthful about it. So, I keep saying so a lot. I know you guys are probably like, can he find another word to use? I apologize. The Los Angeles Angels, they have a very interesting winter coming up here soon. The season's going to end next month for them. They may get to the postseason. They may not. If I was a bed man, I'll say they won't. Because the AL West, although people aren't talking about it, is very stacked at the top. You have the Mariners, you have the Astros, and you have the Rangers. And let me just say something about the Rangers. There was a point in time during this season where the Rangers held a commanding lead over the Mariners and the Astros at the top of the AL West. And now you look at the Rangers and they're fighting just to be in second and third place within that division. So that goes to show you how fast things can change in the sport of baseball, just in sports in general. But with that being said and stated, the Angels have a very important winner coming up. And one of the biggest reasons why they have an important winner coming up is because of the impending free agency of their star player Shohei Otani, who many people consider to be their best player. The thing about Shohei is that right now he's in this very interesting state where he has the elbow injury and he's or his agent has told the team that he continues to pitch and or that he wants to continue to pitch and bat after he heals from this injury. And I was thinking to myself, look, even the best of the best athletes understands that if they suffer some type of an injury like that, they need to scale back what they do. And Shohei Otani saying, hey, look, I could be getting a contract worth $600 million here soon. So I'm trying to play as much baseball as I can to show prospective teams that this is what you will get if you decide to bring me in and sign me. So Shohei Otani's impending free agency looms over the team. With that being said, Mike Trout came out a couple of days ago and said that he wants to have discussions with the Angels front office about which direction this team is going to go. And I'm thinking to myself, this is a conversation that Mike Trout is going to have with the Angels front office that's coming a few years too late. Now, I know that he couldn't have predicted the day that they were going to draft Shohei Otani. But also, Mike Trout should have saw the writing on the wall the same way that Damian Lillard should have saw the writing on the wall in Portland. When you pay one player all of that money, it's going to become very hard for you to go out and make big splashes in free agency. Of course, baseball is different than basketball because there's no salary cap. So the Astros, or not the Astros, the Angels could have afforded to pay Mike Trout a boatload of money and still go out there and fill holes in their roster. Whereas Portland couldn't do that because Damian Lillard had all of the money basically tied up to himself contractually. What does all this mean for the Angels? It means that we potentially could be seeing the end of Mike Trout's time in L.A. If Shohei Otani goes to another team and if they pay him that astronomical contract that we think he's going to get, Mike Trout may say to himself, okay, you guys aren't serious about building a contender around me, so I want out. And just to think how explosive that would be. Think about how dominant that would be 
in the news cycle as it pertains to sports media if Mike Trout says to the Angels, you know what, I want to go. Because I've been seeing this movie play out for years now, and it's time for me to go ahead and take my talents elsewhere. I'm not getting any younger. I want to win a World Series. I understand that I've become a fixture in the Anaheim community with this fan base, but I want to win a World Series. I already got the bag. I want a ring. I want to hold up that commissioner's trophy in October or now in November. I want to hold that trophy up. And if you guys aren't going to put me in a position to where I can hold that trophy up, then I got to go. I got to bounce. Especially if Shohei walks out the door as well. So do I think that this is the right move for Mike Trout to make? Of course. But do I think it's coming at a time that may be too little too late? Yes. That's the way I felt about the whole Damian Lillard thing. So I'm not going to sit here and change horses in the middle of the stream as it pertains now to Mike Trout and his impending situation with the Angels. Now, I know somebody's going to want me to give a prediction about where I believe Shohei Otani is going to land up or end up. Keep your eye out for the Yankees. And who knows, the Dodgers may be in it as well. But I believe that if you're Shohei Otani, you're going to want to go to a team where you can still continue to contribute at a high level and you also have a better opportunity of winning a World Series. I believe that those are going to be the two pivotal things that Shohei Otani is going to look at if he decides to leave the Angels. And if you're a baseball fan, you don't want to see the Angels waste away all of Shohei Otani's prime the same way that they did Mike Trout. So get the heck out of Dodge while you can, is what I'm saying. Okay. Saturday night is very important. It's important for a lot of reasons. But one of the biggest reasons why Saturday night is so important is because one of the most overhyped games of the 2023 college football season will take place. And I'm pretty sure I don't have to tease this game. I don't have to go into a long soliloquy about this game. You guys know. The game that I'm speaking of happens to be between number 11 ranked Texas, traveling over to Tuscaloosa to take on third ranked Alabama. I know some of you guys that may have joined us late on this pod. You may be saying to yourself, why do you view that game as being so overhyped? And I'll tell you why. If you're Nick Saban and if you're Alabama, last season you won this game over in Austin 20 to 19. And there were some questionable things that popped up along the way that could have caused any, even the most casual college football fan to say, if things would have went a little bit differently, Texas could have won that game. Texas should have won that game. But ultimately, Alabama won that game. Now that this game shifts over to Tuscaloosa, we know that that home crowd in T-Town is going to be behind their Crimson Tide. And if you're Steve Sarkeesian, this is the game that you were brought to Texas to win. Anything short of a competitive game will be looked at as an object failure, especially considering what we saw last season in Austin. If this game is not close, if this game is not competitive, if this game is not a four-quarter affair, people will start to wonder if Steve Sarkeesian is the coach that can bring Texas back to prominence. Now, I know what you may be saying. Have you taken a look at that roster? Have you looked at their quarterback room? Yes, 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 yes. I've seen all of that. But what I've also seen is every single year, we continuously ask the question, 
Is Texas back? Is this your year for Texas? Can Texas take this thing all the way? Sark even said it at Big 12 Media Days a couple of months ago that the biggest splash that Texas can make is to leave the Big 12 as champions of that conference before they head over to the SEC in 2024. If he wants that goal to be achievable, and if he wants that goal to be something that he knows that his team can reach, it's going to have to start Saturday night. And you may be saying to yourself, well, how's it going to start against an out-of-conference opponent? If he wants to make a statement heading into the SEC, what better statement can he make than knocking off one of the top programs in the conference in which his team is about to enter into? That would be the biggest statement that, I was about to say Dabo, that's the biggest statement that Steve Sarkeesian can make. And I think that that's a statement that if he does make it and if his team can go out there and deliver, that's going to set college football ablaze. Because let's just take this for a second and let's just look at it. If Texas goes into Brian Denny Stadium and if they pull that game, because it would be an upset because they're not favored, on the line that I saw earlier today, Alabama's favored by a touchdown against the Longhorns. If Texas walks into Brian Denny Stadium and if they walk out with the victory, that's going to cause many people to start asking the question, is Nick Saban and Alabama done as far as their 2023 expectations? Because you know that's going to be the question people are going to ask. And that would have been the same question people would have asked last season if they would have lost to Texas. And that's going to cause some people to come out and say that Nick Saban's past his prime, the sport has passed him by, it's time for Nick to go sit down and enjoy retirement. Maybe Jalen Monroe is not what he was advertised when he played against Middle Tennessee State or Middle Tennessee. All those different things are going to come up. The wide receiver room sucks. You know how this goes. So what I'm saying is that for me personally, this game is very overhyped. You may be listening to this pod saying to yourself, this guy has to be delusional if he believes that this game is overhyped. We can agree to disagree on this. I just don't really see what's the big significance of this game. Now, if Texas walks in there and gets the win, then I can see where the significance comes from. But me looking at this game as someone who lives in the South, Alabama should be able to take care of business. Because all I've been hearing from people in the buildup to this game uh, Texas won't be able to stand a chance against Alabama. Alabama should be able to take this game and dominate from start to finish. If you're an Alabama fan, that's what you're hoping for. If you're a Texas fan, you're just hoping to get this game to the fourth quarter and you're still within a score. So we'll see what happens Saturday night over in Tuscaloosa when these two teams score off against each other. And we may as well prepare ourselves because this is going to be a matchup we're going to see in the SEC for years to come anyway. So a little bit of a preview of what Texas is going to look like once they enter into the SEC. Uncharted territory for them, at least. Needed to take a sip of water there. So, there I go again, saying so. We are a couple of months away from the 2024 NFL Draft. And already we're starting to hear about the presumptive top picks in that draft. But two guys have clearly separated themselves from the rest of the pack. Caleb Williams of Southern California and Drake May of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. 
Caleb Williams, in many people's eyes, is the presumptive first overall pick in 2024. And whichever team has the losing record and then compensates that by getting the first overall pick in the draft, they will be getting, in most people's eyes, a generational talent at the quarterback position. While others have looked at this and said to themselves, here we go again, another hyped-up quarterback class that may not live up to expectations. Both sides right now can make an argument for their claims. So Caleb Williams' father recently spoke to GQ and told GQ basically that if we don't like what we see as it pertains to teams in the 2024 draft, there may be a possibility that Caleb chooses to go back to Southern California for another season. First of all, I call so much bluff on that. Caleb Williams this season is scheduled to make $3 million in NIL deals. Whereas if he goes to the NFL, he could be making $30 million on his rookie contract because I believe that that's what Bryce Young's rookie contract was, 30-something-odd million dollars. We know that Caleb Williams is going to declare for the NFL draft when it's all said and done. Now, he has talked in recent interviews about how he loves the college life and how his goal before he leaves Southern California would be to deliver them a national championship, something that they haven't had since the 2000s. And if he can deliver a national championship to SC, then there's really nothing left there for him to achieve or to accomplish because he's already did the bulk of what he set out to do. He's won the Heisman, check. If they win the national championship, check. So there's nothing really left for him to do if those things become accomplished. We've all seen the mock drafts for 2024. And many people who specializes in the business of producing mock drafts have all been in total unison, at least in some respects, that the Arizona Cardinals will be the team that's going to obtain the first overall pick in the 2024 draft. If that's the case, and if the Cardinals are the team that eventually ends up with the number one overall pick, then we know exactly what that means. It means that they're going to select Caleb Williams and they're going to remove themselves away from the Kyler Murray experience. An experience, when you look back on it in hindsight, didn't really produce a lot of moments that Cardinal fan could truly be proud of. Because the one highlight that we can easily take away from Kyler Murray's time as a Cardinal would be the Hale Murray play to DeAndre Hopkins and the fact that the team had to include a homework clause in his contract extension. Those are the two highlights of Kyler Murray's tenure out in the desert playing for the Cards. But if the Cards ends up getting the first overall pick in next year's draft, Believe me, they're going to take Caleb Williams. Now, what happens when they do take Caleb Williams? They're going to have to be patient because this process is something that's going to take time. The Cardinals are not a roster right now that's in win-now mode. They are a roster right now that understands they're in rebuild mode, although they would like to be in win-now mode. That's the difference between teams who select at the top of the draft and teams who select at the bottom of the draft. That's the big quintessential difference when you look at those teams. Why would Caleb Williams' father say something like that? Why would he insinuate that Caleb Williams could potentially return to Southern California if they don't like what's at the top of the draft? Simply put, Caleb Williams' father is looking at this saying to himself, when you think about quarterbacks who are taken highly in the draft, and he prefaced his comments by using Baker Mayfield 
and Kyler Murray as perfect examples. He basically said that the organization in which you go to will either determine if you're going to be good or not. And that's not really a bad argument. And that's actually an argument that I've used on this podcast a couple of times myself. Usually it's not the prospective player that's bad. It's the organization that he goes to that's bad. And because the organization is bad, we start to look at the player and say to ourselves, maybe he is bad. No, that's not usually the case. Because when he was in college, he was pretty good. It just so happens that the NFL team that he joins, they're not all that great. So I was listening to a sports show today. And there was a conversation that came up. And there was an idea that was floated around. And the idea was basically something that we've seen before on two different occasions. So the co-host on the show were basically saying, what if Caleb Williams enters the 2024 draft? He doesn't like what's at the top of the draft. And he tries to force his hand the same way Eli Manning did and the same way John Elway did. For those of you that may be unfamiliar with that, let's go back in time. When Eli Manning was selected in the 2004 draft by the San Diego Chargers, out of Ole Miss, there was a backroom deal that was brokered. In my estimation, it was a backroom deal brokered by Archie Manning where Eli Manning was traded to the New York Giants. And the San Diego Chargers used their pick to get Phillip Rivers. And we all know how that worked out. Eli Manning won two Super Bowls with the Giants. And in recent memory, he's one of the best quarterbacks they've had. And that's not truly saying much. I'm sorry, Eli but let's just call it how we see it. Now let's go back to 1983. John Elway is drafted by the then Baltimore Colts coming out of Stanford. And John Elway basically tells the Colts, I would rather play baseball than come and play for you guys. Because at the same time, he was also drafted by the New York Yankees, if I remember correctly. So we all remember how that went down. John Elway was eventually traded to the Broncos. He goes on, wins two Super Bowls there and is still to this very day looked at as the best quarterback the Broncos have ever had. Sorry, Peyton. I just had to call it like I see it. So if Caleb Williams does this exact same thing, which some people have speculated that he may do, he tips his hand in the draft and basically tells the Cardinals, I don't want to play for you. I want to play for fill in the blank. I don't feel like he can get away with that because We have further removed ourselves from that being a possibility in today's drafting process. You could have gotten away with doing that back in 2004 the way Eli did, but you can't get away with that now in 2023 and in Caleb's case in 2024. That's just not going to happen because teams are going to look at this and say, okay, you don't want to play for us. That's fine. But the team he eventually goes on to play for, they'll look at him and say, all right, you wanted us to select you. We need you to come in here, be a transcendently great quarterback, and win us some Super Bowls. And if you can't do that, then we're going to throw you to the scrap heap like we've done every other quarterback that's come in this door before you. And that's the uphill battle that Caleb Williams is up against. Now, am I trying to sit here and say that Caleb Williams is going to be a scrub once he enters the NFL? I'm going to be indifferent on that. Because I don't know what truly Caleb Williams is going to do once he enters the NFL. We've seen some quarterbacks be historically great in college and come into the NFL and stink up the joint. And we've also seen college quarterbacks that have not really been that great come into the NFL and we wonder to ourselves, man, where did this guy come from? Where did he play his college ball? I don't remember hearing about him when he was at so-and-so State University or 
the University of Blank? Yeah, that's because he wasn't that great there. Now he's in the NFL and he's receiving the proper development. He's now blossomed into the quarterback that you wished your team could have drafted. So at the end of the day, I do believe that Kayla Williams will enter the 2024 draft. And I believe that the Cardinals will select him with the first overall pick. And they will move on from Kyler Murray and they will build their team for the foreseeable future around one Caleb Williams. Those are my thoughts. You guys may disagree, but that's the beauty of this show. We can agree to disagree and you guys have all of my contact information. So if you want to say something egregious to me, I'll listen to it. I'll look at it and I'll give you my reasons why I feel that way. That's the beauty of doing podcasts. I tell you, you know, I was thinking to myself not too long ago. One of the reasons why I enjoy this pod is because it gives me an opportunity to go back and forth with some of you guys. Some of you guys reach out to me and you say, I didn't agree with your take on so-and-so. And I say, why? You give me the reason. We go back and forth and we call it a day. That's what I like about doing this pod. I can interact with you guys so I can get a sense of, how are you feeling about a certain topic, a particular thing that we may discuss? I'm trying to make sure I'm not forgetting anything because I'm looking at my sheet here and the sheet that I usually write down my topics on. So I'm trying to make sure I didn't forget anything. So here's something that I do want to talk about. We all know that the NFL season kicks off tomorrow and it's going to start with the Detroit Lions taking on the Kansas City Chiefs which should be a highly entertaining game in its own right. But there's also a game that's going to take place on Monday night, September the 11th. And this game will feature the New York Jets taking on the Buffalo Bills. So one of the players from the New York Jets, DJ Reed, came out a couple of days ago and he was talking about the Chicago, or he was talking about the Jets defense, which was a great defensive unit last season. So he came out. And basically said that the 2022 edition of the Jets defense could be as special as the 85 Bears. I'm paraphrasing what he said, but it went along those lines. First of all, once again, I will reiterate to you guys that I am a historian of the game. I love the game. So I know how special and how prolific the 1985 Chicago Bears were defensively. When you think about the 85 Bears, We talk about two things. We talk about Walter Payton not being able to score a touchdown in the Super Bowl, and we talk about how dominant that defense was throughout the course of the season. Those are the two things that we talk about. And we also talk about about how William the Refrigerator Perry scored a touchdown in the Super Bowl and how Walter Payton did. I guess that's the same thing. But, and hell, Jim McMahon scored a rushing touchdown in the Super Bowl, if I remember correctly, but Walter Payton did not. That's that's one of the craziest sports stories that I've ever heard. One of the greatest running backs of all time in the biggest moment in the sport doesn't get his opportunity to cash in on all of those years of breaking Jim Brown's records. That's crazy to me that Walter Payton never scored a touchdown in the Super Bowl. But anyway, DJ Reed saying that the Jets' defense could be as special as the 85 Bears' defense. I don't want to rush time, because I don't know if you guys have been paying attention, but time is going by fast enough. 
So I don't want to be one of the people saying, I cannot wait until Monday night gets here. But that's exactly what I'm saying. I cannot wait for Monday night to get here. And I'm not trying to be one of these people that's trying to root against the Jets. But my problem with the New York Jets is that they're doing a lot of talking. And one of the things that we've always known about teams that does a lot of talking or do a lot of talking is that they're going to have to back up a lot more than teams who don't do a lot of talking. We don't really hear the Philadelphia Eagles coming out being this cocky unit saying, we know we're going to get back to the Super Bowl. They're not doing that. They're keeping their head down. They're staying focused. And they're following the leadership of their quarterback, Jalen Hurts. When you look at the Jets, on the other hand, all they do is talk. Aaron Rodgers talked to he spoke to the media a couple of days ago, and he talked about how it feels special to be a part of the Jets. Salah's talking about this team is special, but Joe Douglas is the only person in that lock or in that facility saying that, you know, we still got to go out here and prove that we're worthy of all this hype that we've been getting. Joe Douglas is the only person right now that may seem to understand the assignment that's at play here. Now, I have no problem with DJ Reed speaking glowingly of that defense because their defense was special in 2022. But I also understand the historical implications of what he's trying to say here. If this defense can be as special as the 85 Bears, then that means the Jets should be in the Super Bowl. Because we can just list off the guys who made up that 85 defense. Steve McMichael, Mike Singletary, Ron Rivera, Richard Dent, Dan Hampton, I think was his name. We all know those guys. But one of the problems that I'm having with the Jets is that they do so much damn talking. Like you guys arguably make people want to root against you because you guys don't know when to stop talking and letting your play on the field take over. Because let's just say for the sake of argument on Monday night when they go and play the Bills, let's just say they go up there and they get embarrassed. They get humiliated. They get humbled a little bit. I guarantee you that we won't hear all this talk about them on Tuesday morning the 12th. If anything, we'll hear people trying to come to their defense saying, well, Aaron Rodgers didn't play a lot in the preseason. The defense... They were trying to become more acclimated with each other. We're going to hear all the excuses that we can if the Jets lose that game on Monday night to the Bills. So all I'm saying, basically, is that with all of this type, all of this hype coming out of Florham Park, New Jersey, the Jets should be a team that should be in contingency mode for the Super Bowl. And if they're not, then all of this talk is going to be looked upon as just bulletin board material that they're providing other teams as the blueprint on how to beat them. And I'll leave it where it should be there. Checking my notes, making sure I got everything. So it's time for me to go ahead and talk about this game. I've been teasing the game all show long, so it's time for me to discuss it. Tomorrow night... The Detroit Lions will be in Kansas City to take on the Chiefs. It's ring night. It's banner unveiling night. Hey, it's a big night. It's the, let me paraphrase it to you this way. Opening night in the NFL is an opportunity for the league to showcase what's in store for the upcoming season. And I will say this about the NFL. It has nothing to do about the game tomorrow night. But I'm pretty sure you guys have seen the commercials. 
about how all of the players or various players from around the NFL, they take part in a table read for the NFL's script for the upcoming season. You know, the commercial was nice. It was funny. It has some moments in there that made you chuckle a little bit. But the NFL's attempt to try to dissuade people from believing that there is a script is going to backfire because you cannot unconvince people of what they've convinced themselves of. Many people are of the belief that there is a script that the NFL has possession of that dictates how the season pans out. That script includes who's going to be in the Super Bowl, who's going to be in the respective AFC and NFC championships, who's going to have the best seasons, who's going to have the bad seasons, and some people have gone as far as to say the script contains who's going to be injured when. Now that one I can't wrap my head around. That one you're not going to get me to co-sign on. Because injuries aren't something that you can predict. I can't, I can't go to bed tonight and wake up tomorrow morning and say, you know what, today's a good day for me to go out and rupture my Achilles. You can't see that coming. So I can't buy into that notion of the script. But it's just very interesting to me that the NFL is trying to market off of fans' belief that there's a script. You're not going to unconvince those people that a script doesn't exist because they believe that it does. So that's my little spiel on that. So it's a big game tomorrow night. The Kansas City Chiefs are the defending Super Bowl champions. They will get their rings. Well, they've already gotten their rings. They're going to unveil the banner, and we're going to see what they're going to look like in trying to defend their title this season and become the first team since the Patriots in the early 2000s to win back-to-back Super Bowl titles. So if we look at this game, according to Vegas, Kansas City is favored by 4.5 and and the over-under is 52.5. There are some glaring questions that we have about the Kansas City Chiefs. The first question, how bad is Travis Kelsey's injury? Now, earlier this week, we found out that Travis Kelsey hyperextended his knee during a non-contact drill in their final practice before the game tomorrow night. If Travis Kelsey is not available for this game, that will leave Patrick Mahomes without his number one weapon and his most reliable weapon. And this comes on the heels of finding out that Kadarius Toney is going to be good to go for this game. But I don't believe that Patrick Mahomes has enough trust in Kadarius Toney the same way that he does in Travis Kelsey. So this is going to be a big loss if he cannot go in this game tomorrow night. And obviously the big enchilada that hovers over this game, Chris Jones' absence. Now I told you what Chris Jones said today in an interview that the only thing he's looking for is a raise and that he wants to be a Kansas City Chief for life. And the Chiefs are unwilling to budge on that. Brett Veach has already said that we don't want to trade him, but we need to come to a compromise about a number that both sides can seem investing in. So if Travis Kelsey doesn't play, and if Chris Jones is unavailable, your best defensive player, that will leave an opportunity for the Detroit Lions to come in here and steal this game. And if Detroit walks into Arrowhead Stadium and walk out of Arrowhead Stadium with a victory, Do you realize how big of an impact and how much of a ramification that's going to have for the Kansas City Chiefs as they move forward? It's going to have big ramifications on the season for them ahead. So I'll say all that to say this. I'm going to surprise a lot of people here. But I'm going to take the Detroit Lions to win this game. You guys that have been listening to this pod since we launched back on July 1st of last year, you won't know how much of a Detroit Lions fan I am. Now, they're not my favorite team, but I'm really bought into what they can do. 
because they're bought into Dan Campbell's message about playing together in this football, and they're bought into the notion that they can go as far as Jared Goff takes them. So this is a team that I believe that can go into Arrowhead Stadium and pull the upset. Now, if they can't pull the upset, which would be best-case scenario, worst-case scenario is that they keep this game competitive for all four quarters and force Kansas City to play a fourth-quarter game. Because what you don't want to have happen is Kansas City gets a grip on this game early on, never relinquish it, and next thing you know, you're looking up at the scoreboard and they're leading this game 35-14 with three minutes to go in the fourth quarter, and Detroit has no sensible way of coming back making that game competitive. So with all of that being said, I believe that the Detroit Lions are going to win this game. And my final prediction will be Detroit 28, Kansas City 24. My prediction for tomorrow night's game. Now, I believe in my heart of hearts that I could be wrong about that, but I've been wrong about a lot of predictions before. But I just have this very strange feeling in the back of my head that the Detroit Lions are going to go down there, understand the assignment, and they're going to take care of business. And we may even see Patrick Mahomes struggle at times without his most most reliable weapon in Travis Kelsey. It is that time, ladies and gentlemen. It is that time. Unpopular opinions. I've been waiting on this all show long because I know that today's edition of Unpopular Opinions is going to get people talking. And that's exactly what I want it to do. So the U.S. Open is taking place right now. And the U.S. Open will conclude on September the 10th with the men's championship. This year's edition of the U.S. Open is very important. Because this year's edition of the U.S. Open marks 50 years of equal pay at this event. So let's go back in time to 1973. The U.S. Open became the first tennis tournament that guaranteed equal pay to both the men and women players that partook in that event. And Billie Jean King was one of the driving forces behind that decision being made. Today's unpopular opinion goes with that theme. And basically what I'm trying to say is that for so long now, we've been hearing about this discussion about equal pay for both men and women's sports. And I've always said that if you're going to make the surface equal, as far as the pay is concerned, then you should make it equal as far as the conditions of play are concerned. So that brings me to my prediction for today. Or this brings me to my unpopular opinion. We all know that in women's tennis, there's only the best of three sets. You have to win two sets to win a match. How about we spice this up a little bit? Equal pay is important because if you're playing the same sport, then you should be receiving the same type of compensation. But we understand why that's not the case. Case in point, last night, I watched the Francis Tiafo-Ben Shelton match, and Arthur Ashe Stadium was filled to the brim. Earlier that day, I watched the Muchova match when she took on Christian. I think that's her. And Arthur Ashe Stadium wasn't filled to capacity. You still had some seats in there to where if you showed up late, you could still get in there. What I'm saying is there is more intrigue around the men's game than there is the women's game. Now, don't get me wrong. I love women's tennis, regardless of who's on top. And I say that to say this. Iga Shuatik is out of this tournament. Now that she's out, Arena Sabalenka not only has the opportunity to win the event because she is one of the heavy favorites to win it, but she's also going to become the new world number one on the WTA ranking system 
once Monday, September 11th rolls around. So congratulations to Irena Sabalenka. So here's the here's the unpopular opinion. I, I need to get there. The unpopular opinion goes as follows. Women tennis events should go to the same format that men's tennis events go. Now, of course, when you get into the ATP Masters 1000s, 500s, 250s, things of that nature, it's best of three sets. And once you get to the Grand Slams, you go up to the best of five sets. Could you only imagine how many tennis outcomes on the ladies' side would be different if it went to a best of five sets? Because one of the things that we've seen as it pertains to tennis is that some of your best players don't get an opportunity to really bring their game up to peak form until they get off into those later sets. For an example, the other night, when Novak Djokovic was down two sets to nothing to Laszlo Jury, everybody thought Djokovic was finished. Everybody thought that Jury was going to be able to coast his way in that third set and beat Djokovic in straight sets and eliminate one of the preeminent favorites to win the event. And next thing you know, from the third set onward, Novak Djokovic just, it, it seemed as though, it seemed as though, he flipped the switch and Laszlo Jury could not do some of the same things against Djokovic that he had done in those first two sets. That's the reason why I've always been an advocate of five setters. Because, for an example, let's just say that Coco Golf and let's just say Coco Golf and Arena Sabalenka. Coco Golf wins the first set, Sabalenka wins the second. In the third set, Sabalenka pulls away, she wins it. How much more different would that match have turned out if it had gone five sets and Coco would have been able to go and refine her footing? That's what I'm saying. If we're going to have the discussion about equal pay, then we should at least get equal return on the investment. Let's make women's tennis five-set events. And I guarantee you, you're going to start to see a lot of outcomes swing the other way. And that is today's edition of Unpopular Opinions. So sticking with the U.S. Open, and I rarely do this, I rarely bring up another topic that's not the final verdict after I do Unpopular Opinions. So keeping with the theme of the U.S. Open, one of the reasons why the U.S. Open is so important to us that lives in the States, if you're someone that's listening overseas, is because we play this game every single year where we're waiting for someone else that's from the United States to win this event. The last time an American male won the U.S. Open, you got to go all the way back to 2003 when Andy Roddick did it. The last time a lady won or a woman won the U.S. Open, you got to go all the way back to 2017 when Sloane Stevens did it. And every year we play this fun waiting game about which American male and which American woman can eventually go on to win the U.S. Open. And it's been a game that we've been playing for so long that now every time the U.S. Open rolls around, I think to myself, oh, here we go again. But if you've been paying attention to a lot of the major sports media shows, they're starting to talk about tennis a little bit more. And they're not talking about tennis because they're genuinely into it. They're talking about tennis because a lot of Americans remain in the second week of this event. Before Taylor Fritz and Francis Tiafo lost last night, you had Francis Tiafo, Taylor Fritz, and Ben Shelton remaining 
in the U.S. Open to go along with Andre Rublev, Daniil Medvedev, Novak Djokovic, and Carlos Alcaraz. Those were the guys that made up what was left in the final eight of the U.S. Open. And then if you go over and look at the ladies' side, Madison Keys is left and Coco Golf is left. But what's so interesting is now that we're starting to see more Americans left in the U.S. Open draw, that's when coverage on ESPN and other networks, that's when their coverage of tennis starts to pick up. And I've been saying this for quite a while because people will listen to this podcast and they will say to me, why are you so interested in talking about tennis, a sport that the majority of sports talk shows don't even talk about? And the simple answer to that question is because I think we're starting to enter into a very interesting point when we talk about tennis. We're starting to see tennis become more of a diversified sport than it's ever been before. I was thinking about this today when I was wrapping up prep for the show. You could go to a tennis court in your neighborhood, a public tennis court in your neighborhood, and you can have your tennis bag, you can have your racket, you can have your can of tennis balls. And you can walk out there and be a stranger amongst everybody that's there already. And you can walk away from that court and you potentially could have made five or six new friends. That's just how much of the community aspect that has arrived in the tennis spectrum today, especially at the recreational level. Tennis is a sport that now we're starting to see all people of all different races and ages starting to come together and starting to partake in. And a lot of that has started to also gravitate over towards the pickleball section. Now, (laughs) I'm not anti-pickleball, but I think that if you're going to play pickleball, you should at least first know the basics of how to play tennis. Because that's all pickleball is. It's It's a more faster version of tennis. Now, tennis is fast in its own right, especially if you play against someone that's up there as far as ranking is concerned or rating is concerned. But I think pickleball is a much faster sport than tennis because the ball is coming at you at a much more faster pace than a tennis ball. You don't really have a lot of time to react to pickleball like you do tennis. Now, in tennis, you still have a little bit of time to react, but pickleball, that time is cut nearly in half. So I say all that to say this. Mainstream sports talking shows are only talking about tennis because of the Americans that's left in the draw. They're not genuinely concerned about the U.S. Open. They're not caught up to date about Novak Djokovic potentially tying Margaret Court for the most singles Grand Slam titles won all time. They're not genuinely concerned about Carlos Alcaraz defending his U.S. Open title. They're not talking about the ramifications of Carlos Alcaraz finally relinquishing the number one overall ranking to Novak Djokovic once the new rank has come out on Monday. All of those storylines are just water under the bridge because they're not important as compared to the Americans that are left in the U.S. Open draw. So I think that it does a disservice to people who watch those sports shows and want to get a better understanding of the event because it's been a very interesting event. Now, I've had an opportunity to sit and watch it because I haven't really been out of the house since my mom passed away except if it's to go to work or if I need to run to the store, things of that nature. But if it's anything else, I've been mostly glued to the house because I really don't have the energy to do some of the things that I did before she passed. So using the time that I have, I've been able to watch the U.S. Open. And we've seen a lot of big names leave early. And we've also seen a lot of 
players come out of nowhere and make strong runs. And one of those players happens to be Ben Shelton. Now, Ben Shelton is not new to the tennis spectrum. Ben Shelton won an NCAA championship during his time at Florida when his father was coaching him. So it's not as though he's just one of those guys that just came from out of the ground and all of a sudden he's playing phenomenal tennis. The one thing that concerns me about Ben Shelton as he heads into his match on Friday against Novak Djokovic is that I like his play. I like Ben Shelton as a player. But the one thing that concerns me is how erratic his play can become at times. And we've seen this from a lot of big servers, which Ben Shelton happens to be. Just because you're a big server, that doesn't mean you have the big game to back up that big serve. And that becomes problematic for a lot of players. If your game cannot back up your serve, then you're already in no man's land. And one of the things that will be interesting to see once those guys square up against each other on Friday is how will Novak Djokovic be able to respond to the serve of Ben Shelton? Because Novak's been around the circuit for quite a while. So he's seen a lot of the bigger servers come into the game. Nick Kyrgios, John Isner, Andy Roddick. He's seen a lot of big servers. So it's not like this is uncharted territory for him. But Ben Shelton possesses a serve, especially from a lefty that we've not really seen before. That's the only difference. All of those guys that I've just listed off to you a couple of seconds ago, they're righties. Ben Shelton is a lefty. So it's going to throw Novak off, I believe, early on, and I believe he's going to find his footing. But don't be surprised if Ben Shelton wins a couple of sets. And don't be surprised if he comes out of there and wins the match. I'm just saying, magical runs don't have to end prematurely. He could take this streak of dominance all the way to the U.S. Open Final on Sunday. And on the ladies' side, right now, we all know what's at stake. This will be, if I remember correctly, the ninth time in the past 10 years that we're going to see a new champion on the ladies' side at the U.S. Open. That says a lot about where women's tennis is. That also speaks to that self-identification conflict complex that I've been telling you guys about. Self-identification. I continue to repeat that message because I want you to understand how important it is that you understand where tennis is today on the women's side. It's going through a period of self-identification where they have to look in the mirror and figure out where they're going. And if that's not a pretty clear indicator of where it's going, look no further than Arena Sabalenka overtaking Iga Swiatek for the number one ranking in the world after this event wraps up on Sunday. So we know that Sabalenka is going to be a favorite. We know that Coco Golf is going to be a favorite. Somebody's going to have to walk away from Flushing Meadows as the champion. And let me quickly look over those matchups for you to make sure here. So in the semifinal, which is going to take place on tomorrow, Coco Golf is going to play Caroline Muschova, which should be an interesting match. And Sabalenka is going to play Madison Keys. Do you realize how interesting it would be if Coco Golf beats Muchova and if Madison Keys beats Sabalenka, where we get an All-American final for the first time in quite a while? Since 2017, actually, because Madison Keys was the one that lost to Sloane Stevens when she won the U.S. Open back then. So interesting storylines as we near the end of the U.S. Open, and it has been an event 
that if you've missed it, you've missed a lot of interesting things, especially the other night when Sasha Zverev had to stop the match to inform the chair umpire that somebody was saying some very insinuary things about him when he was serving. So it's been a very, very, very interesting event this year. And plus, I forgot to bring this up. Novak Djokovic has not been able to compete in the United States since the 2021 U.S. Open final where he lost to Daniil Medvedev. It feels great to see Novak Djokovic back in the States playing tennis. And I'll leave it at that. It's time. It is that time, ladies and gentlemen, for us to part ways. But before we part ways, I have to deliver you a final verdict for this Wednesday. And of course, today's final verdict is going to detail something that has become a story of its own. And that's the continued debate amongst friends, amongst family, amongst co-workers, amongst people who don't even know each other. Which sports talk show is better? The new Undisputed or the new First Take with Stephen A. Smith and Shannon Sharp? Now, me personally, I think that both shows are great in their own right. But considering this highly politicized world we live in now, you can't really say that and expect people not to ask you to elaborate on your opinion. Both shows are great in their own right because both shows presents a unique perspective that the other one doesn't. Both shows have recurring guest hosts. Both shows also delves into topics that spans basketball, football, baseball, hockey, the occasional tennis talk, all of those different things those shows cover. But the one thing that separates these two shows is one man, and that's Shannon Sharp. Many people have already said that they will never watch the new Undisputed again. And it's not because they don't like Michael Irvin, Keyshawn Johnson, or Richard Sherman. It's because of the way Skip and Shannon departed from each other, the way that that relationship became rocky towards the end. And many people will look at Undisputed and say to themselves that it just doesn't seem like it's a great fit. Stephen A. Smith hollering, Shannon Sharp hollering, and Molly Karam right there in the middle talking too much. That's what people have said about that show. But this debate will never end. Because for all of the people out there that will tell you that Undisputed is a great show, you're going to have someone else that's going to come around and say, no, First Take is better. But both shows basically were created by the man that currently occupies the main host slash moderator spot on Undisputed, who happens to be Skip Bayless. Skip Bayless basically has his stamp on both of those shows. And this debate is never going to end. That's the reason why I choose never to partake in debates like this, especially GOAT debates, which TV show is better, which team is going to win the national championship. All these debates I never choose to partake in because no matter how strong you can back up your opinion, somebody's going to say, no, your opinion's wrong, and here's why. Both shows are great. That's where I'm at. And both shows bring something to the table that the other one doesn't. Me personally, I don't like Skip's new role on Undisputed, where he's basically taking a back seat to the other three guys on the show, and now he's just the moderator, looks like he's scrunched up in the corner, and he only talks when he feels the coast is clear. 
And on first take, I would like to see Shannon Sharp more than just on Mondays and Tuesdays. I would also like to see Shannon Sharp on more ESPN programming, more specifically college football today, NFL Live, hell, even Monday Night Countdown. Shannon Sharp and his vast knowledge of the game of football would make him perfect for all of ESPN's NFL shows that they do and all of their college football shows that they do. He could also be a great guest host on college football game day or game day. And likewise, I would like to see Keyshawn Johnson, Richard Sherman, and Michael Irvin make guest appearances on other FS1 shows. Speak. First things first. The Cardin Show. The Herd. That would be able to allow them to diversify themselves from just being on Undisputed. That would also allow Shannon Sharp to diversify himself from just being a recurring contributor on first take. I feel like if you do those things, and as long as those things work out for positive reasons, then I think you have a winning formula on your hands that both networks should easily look into. But this debate is never going to cease because one person or people who are in one camp from the other will always feel that their side is the one that's in the right here while also convincing you that you're in the wrong. And that's basically how we look at this situation. We all have the same agenda in mind. We just have different ways of getting there. The guys are going to say first take is better. Some are going to say undisputed is better. But regardless of which one you think is better, they're still delivering the same thing at the end of the day. And that's opinionated sports talk that allows them to give their opinions and to say things that further bolsters their own true feelings. And that's going to conclude today's episode of Sports Court, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for joining me for another brand new episode. We will be right back here again on Friday with a recap of Lions and Chiefs. And I will also give you my week one NFL picks. Plus, we're going to have more sports news on top of that. So until then, have a great rest of your Wednesday. Have an amazing Thursday. Enjoy the game. Stay safe. Take care. Tell a loved one that you love them. And God bless. 